Welcome. You are listening to a sermon preached at Church at the Armory. If you like what you hear, share it. God bless you. For Jesus to build his church, we have to recognize that the signs of the times, we must beware the leaven. And then we must, well, we must know the king. I prayed that the Lord would give me grace to make much of Jesus today. We, as a church, will never rise above our vision of his majesty. If you really want to be the church, then don't nasal gaze. Jesus gaze. When we set out to plant churches over a decade ago, the Lord spoke to us and said, if you, want to, if you want to plant a church, don't try to plant a church. Bring the kingdom. The king and his dominion is what creates the church. Your people volunteer freely in the day of your power. When the king's reign is revealed the way it's supposed to look on this side of the return of Jesus, people come together and you plant a church. So in order to relaunch, we must renew our fascination with Jesus. We must renew our study of his ways. We must refresh our pursuit of his way of going from humility to majesty. In verse 13, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, remember where we're going. We read the verse ahead of time. I'll build my church. I'll build my church. Now look at the context. Here's how he, Jesus gets there. First, detect the signs. Second, beware the leaven. Third, hey, who do people say I am? Because that's how you get to the identity of the church. You first identify Jesus. We can't just look at ourselves and try to be the church. Like the Who's and what the, the Whoville, the, the Grinch who stole Christmas. After all the presents were stolen, they still had those happy faces and they came out because they were looking at something else. Their countenances were the same. The quality of their lives were the same, even when you take their gifts away. Because if I can Christianize it for us, their gaze was upon Jesus, the beauty of the Lord, the King, the majesty. Even though sometimes we're even troubled by him. Still, we can't take our gaze away. And that's how we're defined. It's about Jesus. It's not about us. Right? When Yahweh appears in the burning bush to Moses, he said, I am what I am. Or I am that I am. And I heard one preacher one time say, I am means you're not. Our gaze on the I am makes us secondary at best. It's about him. And when that's our concern, we become his people. Who do people say that I am? That's the real issue here. I'm taking you away. I'm saying no to the hypocritical formation of, quote, my people, the people of God. We're saying no to the leaven. 
But now to prepare you, I have to ask the question, who are they saying I am? It's not because Jesus was insecure. He didn't need to know what they thought about him because of his ego, but he did need to know what they thought about him in order to constitute his church. Now listen to this praise in verse 14. Well, some are saying John the baptizer, others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And that's very high praise. The living prophetic word has been silent for four centuries to this point. The great prophets of old, who according to Peter and the Hebrews and John's Gospel, chapter 1. These great prophets were not forerunners to New Testament prophets. They were forerunners to King Jesus, who's called the Word. These are great men to be using language like this. Jeremiah, because we see your passion. John the Baptist, because you're shaking cities. And there's a repentance movement more around you than around him. Elijah, because of the miracles. We're living in Bible days again. That's what they're saying. People are saying this. They're ranking you with the highest authorities in our history. High praise indeed. Not high enough. We would never call Jesus a mere Jeremiah or Elijah. But sometimes we imply it. By limiting him. It may not be what we articulate in our doctrines, but it's sometimes what we articulate in our hearts. We can't look up and see a mere prophet. We must look up and see God, man, divine, human, king, and Lord. Because the revelation of the church depends on the revelation of the king. And we must have a revelation of him that's to us in us and through us, then we will become those people. That's what they're saying. They're ranking you with the prophets. Who do you say that I am? And that's the question posed. Let's ask our hearts. Let's not say what we know to say with our lips. Let's let the question penetrate and sit for a second and make us uncomfortable. Who do you say I am? Listen, who do you say I am? You. The you, you, down in your guts, where you really think and feel, where you emotionally respond to serious problems, where you process important life issues about your children and your finances and your purpose. Down there, In what scripture calls your inward, sometimes it refers to it as your glory. Your inward parts, your kidneys, your intestines. Down in where you really are you. Who are you saying this Jesus is? Is he a suit-wearing, conservative, American Republican? Is he a feel-good guy who strokes your hair when you just are a little discouraged? And by the way, he will do that. Don't get me wrong. Better than anyone. 
but still are we limiting him there to what someone else can do? Do we find ourselves running for the other dope that is available to us rather than daring to break through till we get to him? Who do you say I am? Simon Peter steps forward and answers, you're the king. He says it. He broke the ice. He broke the fourth wall. He comes out with it. In Hebrew, Moshiach. In the Greek here, Christos. You're the Christ. Ultimately, what's that saying? You're the king. You're the one. There's no one else. You're the one son of David that will rule forever the people of Jacob. That's what he's saying. He steps forward and he says it. And he's right. You're the son of the living God. This, this olive-skinned young man, this carpenter from Nazareth, this controversial figure, this offensive teacher who just shut out the entire religious establishment, this bold, brash fisherman steps forward and says, you're the king. That's who we say you are. You're the son of God. You've come to deliver us. We don't have to wait for anyone else. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Because flesh and blood... That's interesting, son of Jonah. Because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter. Isn't this interesting? You identify me right, now we can say who you are. Doesn't start with you. I want to find myself. Don't find yourself. Find his self. And then he'll tell you who you are. Isn't that good? I'm not saying God's. I'm saying it good. He's saying it good. You're identifying me with that praise above the prophets? You're the rock. That's what you are, man. You're my rock. I'm going to use you. And people like you. You're the Petros. I'm going to use the whole Petra. That's the kind of people I'm going to build my people on. That's powerful. See how it all begins with Jesus? We identify him. He identifies us. And that's when he says the word church for the first time. I also say to you that you are Peter. And upon this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overpower it. You see how that goes? I already explained. This is the first time and one of the few only times he ever mentions the word church. He uses it sparingly. He would not say the word church until his disciples said the word king. We as his people are not defined by ourselves, but by his majesty. Jesus. 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 He is king. He is Lord. He is alive from the dead. He is the one. That is the way you relaunch a church. You relaunch a gaze and a study upon Jesus. When John saw him in Revelation chapter 1, like we've already discussed a bit, he saw one he knew, 
but still didn't really know. By this time in prison, John was a well-seasoned, experienced apostle. He had seen miracles probably consistently every single week of his life since Jesus ascended. He had planted churches. He had been beaten and he suffered and he prayed and he knew the presence of God. He knew, knew the miracle working presence and power of God. If he were in the room, if he were alive today, we would feel God's presence on this man. He's a seasoned veteran of the faith. He's a father. He's one of the 12. And one day he hears a trumpet blast while he's praying in the spirit in his cave prison. And speech is coming through. And he turns around and he says, I saw seven golden lampstands and in the middle of the lampstands, one standing like a son of man with a robe reaching to his feet. And a golden belt around his chest. And his head and his hair were white like wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. And his feet were like burnished bronze when it's been fired to a glow in the furnace. And there was a sword coming out of his mouth, a sharp two-edged sword. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. This is the man I've known for decades, but I just have never seen anything like this in my life. You go outside today, and when the clouds part, if they're not parted, you don't really do this. I'm joking. I'm not really, I'm exaggerating to make a point. Go stare at the sun for a while. How long will it take before you just look at the sun and it causes damage? However long it is, it ain't long. Because the sun's bright and it's powerful. And it's 93 million miles away. What if it were in the same room with you? On the floor. Exhausted of every last shred of physical and emotional energy, I fell at his feet like a dead man. This is not a suit-wearing Republican, and this ain't Mary's little lamb anymore. He is the human embodiment of divine radiation, eternity, God himself, standing in the cave in front of John, and he dropped like a dead fish, like a mosquito on the black light. Took that long. Splat. The revelation we need is not for the faint heart. It's not for the shallow, Pentecostal, charismatic lingo. One moment in his presence, one moment in his presence may send you away limping for the rest of your life. It's called the fear of the Lord. And I felt, I mean, faint whispers of it today. For what in those first few minutes, I was intimidated, not like I was that day in the basement, but I could felt, I, I could feel it a bit. And I'm like, man, the Lord wants these people. 
Because what I'm sensing, and I felt like it was just a barometer so that I could share this with you, it's not because I am the barometer, it's because the Lord just chose to have me speak today. That he wants to show himself to you, but you got to gird up your loins. This, is, this isn't just going to be a charismatic little good feeling. Oh, just one encounter. It's like, one encounter? One encounter made Saul blind for three days. He had to be prayed to be healed because he saw Jesus. He had to, he needed prayer for healing because he saw Jesus. We cannot reduce him to the Jeremiah's and Elijah's of our charismatic movement. That's all bankrupt now. Be the church that's formed by the vision in your eyeballs of Yeshua who makes himself known. Even when it's disturbing, when it's intimidating, when people are afraid to get up behind a pulpit, which they kind of should be anyway, and sometimes never do it, and that includes me. I'm serious. When it, that just happens, like this, forget anything planned worship. It's, and it's not even that the Lord changed our plan. It's like emotionally we can't do anything except just drop down. And I don't know if I'll ever be able to get up. I mean, John would not have been able to get up if the one who stunned him was not also the one who put his hand upon him. It's, it's, it's me to begin with, he says, and it's me that gets you up. And until you're encapsulated by me in that way, you can't be my church. We're going to plant a church so we buy a building. Heaven have mercy on us. What do they do in Iran? What do they do in North Korea? They carry on in the fear of the Lord, it says on that board back there. They've seen Jesus. They can't help but go. And they make do with the few resources you have. They have, you know, like the almighty power of the Spirit. The power of the gospel, the power of their suffering, the power of their loyalty, because they've seen him and he, he reigns supreme in their value system and affections. He makes the church the church. The building and the sign and the name never make the church. King Jesus makes the church. And make no mistake, the man that he saw in blazing glory, in a, the radiance of the dawn, was the man who was selfless and meek when he walked the earth. There was no flaw in him. John was not just seeing raw power. He was seeing one who was limitless in his sacrifice and selfless love. He gazed into light. In him there is no darkness at all. There was no moment, there was no shred at any time where he considered himself first, when the one who existed as the form of God failed to regard equality with God as a thing to be insisted upon, he emptied himself. That's the holiness upon which this man was gazing. It was the full extent of glory. Jesus was not raised. He was raised from the dead. That was the route to ascension glory, resurrection from a grave. He actually died for our sins. God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. 
What the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. How do you condemn sin? Sin is not a person. Sin is not a criminal. Can you imagine law courts and all the criminals they condemn if they one day decide, let's condemn crime. Just crime. You can't condemn crime. Crimes abstract. How do you condemn sin? In the flesh of Jesus. Somehow, as Peter says, 1 Peter 2, he bore our sins in his body. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, God made him who knew no sin to be sin. Not a sinner, not guilty. Somehow he bore it. So God could condemn sin in him so that the righteous requirement of the law could be fulfilled in us. We wouldn't just be saved. We'd be transformed. That is selfless love. That's the meekness of a lamb as pure as the purest silk that God himself only could create. And that's what John saw. That man, I mean, that, that covenant loyalty, that, that, that fight against sin and temptation in his own life, that praying through in the agony of the garden, so that he would stay the course and drink the cup that he naturally did not want to drink. He had to pray about it, just like we do. Staying the course, Father's plan, resisting the devil at every turn. Meek, washing dirty feet. Dying for dirty sinners. That's the one John saw. God raised him all the way from the dead. Now he is divine and human. He's always been divine, but he's now divine human at the same time for all eternity. That's the Jesus upon whom we gaze, whose ways we want to learn. Can I encourage you? Let this be your implied commitment through this relaunch. Recommit yourself to the discovery of Jesus Christ. I mean, be serious about it. Let me tell you a couple things really quickly. Learn his ways. Let them cut you and show you where you personally, where I personally, or where we as a church, where we contradict them, and let's recover his ways. Moses prayed to the Lord, show me your ways so that I might know you. To know his ways is to know him. Let's rediscover Jesus Christ in the word of God. Let's be scholars. I don't mean academic scholars. I mean people who love the book and are really looking for Jesus in the book. Can you put that thing up there? I just want to show this picture really quick. I'm going to, um, if you have it, and I have it on my iPad too, I could show you. I got this picture. I used to own it. I got rid of it. it, it, it it's, it's a little bit small, but you can see the face of Jesus there, right? You know what that is? That's the Sermon on the Mount written out. That's what that is. That's the Sermon on the Mount. From the, the first word up there, top left corner is the word, well, I can't read it. All the way to the bottom right corner, that it's the Sermon on the Mount written out. But it, where, it's, where it's darkened, it forms the face of Jesus, of course. And I'm not much into pictures of Jesus. But the point is, obviously, it's symbolic that we find Jesus in his words. Because he is the word. And if you want to gaze upon this man, you need to pray in the Holy Spirit and find him in his word. There's something there for you in a measure that hasn't been there before. 
I'm, t- I'm not calling you to be a scholar by the world's standards. I'm calling you to be scholars who get on your knees with the word of God open and start reading through Matthew's gospel and praying it in Jesus' name. And the Lord walked through Galilee and he preached the gospel of the kingdom. Lord, I pray that you'll restore the gospel of the kingdom. And Lord, I just declare that you are the king right now in Jesus' name. You're the king. I see you as king. <clears throat> it's no mistake either that your, your pastor is in love with and is burdened by the Sermon on the Mount, and we'll start teaching on it next year. You said you already announced this, so I'm not ruining a surprise. And there it is. There's your Sermon on the Mount, and look who it looks like. It's time that we rediscover the Jesus way and make much of Jesus so that we become like him, so that we see him as the King and as the Lord that he is. Moving on very quickly here, beginning to wind down. let Let me say one more thing. I just want to reemphasize this one point. Forgive me. And you could turn the lights back on for me, bro. Thank you. Actually, you could do whatever you want. Who am I to? Anyway, directing traffic around here. There's things about Jesus we don't know. It's always in line with his word, but when you experience it, it's different. Like John, he fell dead before the one that he knew for decades. I've been married for whatever it's been, 38 years, and one of the, the things that just causes me to, to, to be in love with my wife and to love her more as we go is to see her blossom and express in all these new seasons of life. It's like it's the same woman I've always known. I, I've known her since I was 17. I've been married to her since I was 19. So I've known her for a long time, right? Like 20 years? We already we exhausted that joke. I've known her for a long time. I've been married to her for a long time. But to see her shine in new ways and new seasons. As a mother so many years ago when we couldn't even have children, it was a miracle. And then to see her mother and teach the kids. And the kids are amazing adults now. They're joyfully, deeply consecrated people. I've got, I, I, I got grandkids now. And just, just seeing her operate in the church and and love her children and train them up in the way they should go and be a grandmother and just all this dark hair. She's just awesome. It's a new revelation in every season of life. Jesus is going to show you new things about his eternal and ancient being that will shock you and cause you to fall in love with him again, but some of it will be disturbing. Not because it's wrong, because it's right. In Mark 10, he was marching toward Jerusalem. His disciples were following him from a distance. They were amazed, it says. Mark tells us they were amazed and afraid. There's just something about him that cannot be contained. Like Aslan, right? The children ask the beavers after they find out that Aslan is a lion. Oh, they say, is he quite safe? And the beavers laugh. No, he's not safe, but he's good. We're we're not getting on a safe roller coaster with Yeshua, but he's good. So pursue him, but really count the cost and relaunch soberly as well as joyfully. Jesus is king. You know that old sermon, maybe from the 70s, S.M. Lockridge, that's my king. You should pull that up. Read it. It's cool. 
He's the king. I'm not going to read the whole thing. He's the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings, and he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. No far-reaching telescope can bring into visibility the coastland of his shoreless supply. No barriers can hinder him from pouring out his blessing. He's enduringly strong, entirely sincere, eternally steadfast, immortally graceful, imperially powerful, impartially merciful. That's my king. He's God's son, the center savior, the centerpiece of civilization. He stands alone in himself. He's august, unique, unparalleled, unprecedented, supreme, preeminent. The loftiest idea in literature, the highest personality in philosophy, the supreme problem in higher criticism, the fundamental doctrine of true theology, the cardinal necessity of spiritual religion, that's my king. He heals the sick, he cleanses lepers, he forgives sinners, discharges debtors, delivers captives, defends feeble, blesses the young, serves the unfortunate, regards the aged, rewards the diligent, he beautifies the meek. Do you know him? My king is the king of knowledge, the wellspring of wisdom, the doorway of deliverance, the pathway of peace, the roadway of righteousness, the highway of holiness, the gateway of glory, the master of the mighty, the captain of the conquerors, the head of the heroes, the leaders, the leader of the legislatures. He's the overseer of the overcomers, the governor of governors, the prince of princes, the king of kings, and the Lord of lords. That's my king. That's my king. His office is manifold. His promise is sure. His life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. His yoke is easy. And his burden is light. The preacher goes on to say, I wish I could describe him to you. He's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. I'm trying to tell you The heaven of heavens cannot contain him, let alone a man explain him. You can't get him out of your mind. You can't get him off your hands. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. The Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. The witnesses couldn't get their testimonies to agree. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him. The grave couldn't hold him. That's my king. He has always been. He always will be. I'm talking about he had no predecessor. He'll have no successor. There's nobody before him, and there'll be nobody after him. You can't impeach him, and he's not going to resign. That's my king. Praise the Lord. That's my king. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. The glory is all his. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever and ever. And when you get through with all of the forevers, then amen. If we want his church... We have to have him as he is in himself, the king. When people see that revelation, we become like Peter. We become a rock. People who will even take that revelation through trouble and endure, which proves we've had the revelation. Then we become the rock, which is the next thing needed to be his church. We lay down the rock, which is people who've seen the king and are so mastered by the vision that they make it through suffering. They're tested by trials, and they're proven as pure gold. And finally, they make the covenant. And I'll say this in closing. The last passage here, I skipped the part in reading where Jesus 
and Peter have a bit of a conflict based on Peter's new knowledge. Here's where we beware of the leaven. When Jesus says, okay, you've identified me, I've identified you. Now you have to know. Here's that disturbing revelation, right? I'm going to be rejected by your elite and I'm going to die. Which complete, well, we don't have it up there. It's okay, we don't need it. That completely contradicts what I just said, Lord. I just called you the king. You're the king. Your story can't be death. He says, but I'll rise again. Now, this is not for you. And Jesus says, now that's Satan. What do you think about that? One minute, you're the renamed rock with a revelation. The next minute, you're manifesting Satan. He says, because your mindset is on the things of men and not God. How many of you know that the carnal mindset is an open door to satanic activity in the church? That's why the revelation that I described was not just radiant majesty. It was selfless, sacrificial meekness that lays its life down. If we don't see his majesty from that root, we will call him king and then tell him how to be king. And the moment preachers do that, they get the revelation right here and then they get carnal. And in the moment they get carnal, Satan enters the pulpit, and keeps right on preaching if he's not there, if Jesus does not offer the rebuke. We have to beware that leaven and see Jesus as he is and be the kind of rocks that see the revelation and say, then I'll suffer with you. Which is why after this conversation in verse 24, Jesus gives this short speech that we will close with where we make the covenant, which we've already made in baptism, but we will reaffirm with the Lord's Supper. Jesus said to his disciples, okay, here we go. My dear friends, you know I'm the king. Let me describe my way. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Because whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or for what will he give in in exchange for his soul? Because the Son of Man is coming. He's coming in the glory of his Father with his angels. And then he will repay every person according to his deeds. And truly, I'm telling you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Let me pray for you. Let's have you stand. As I hand it over, I'll just give a closing prayer and I'll let uh, Pastor Chester and his dad take it from here. We wait on you, Lord, right now. We ask, we ask you to help us, Lord, by your spirit to help us prepare our hearts. We want to reaffirm our covenant surrender to you but we do it soberly. We count the cost. We don't know the future. We're not fully sure of what we're re-signing up for. Therefore, we look upon you yourself and we ask you for grace right now. We ask you for courage right now. We ask you for mercy. We ask you for grace right now. Just distribute. Lord, we're asking your Holy Spirit would give now portions and portions and portions mercies and mercies and graces and graces right now upon your people, your sweet, precious, beloved people, your bride that looks to you as bridegroom. Lord, we pray for the cleansing agent of your word to wash us,
and cleanse us right now. Prepare us, Lord. If we now remember that someone out there has ought against us, may we make it right. And if we can't physically do it before we partake, give us grace to determine in our hearts that we will do it so that we might be right with you and with one another as we partake right now. Move in our midst, Lord, we pray. Help us, prepare us. We extend ourselves in prayer for your mercy, and we confess Jesus is crucified, risen, and ascended, King of kings and Lord of lords. In his name we pray, amen.